Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Gavin Wallace. I'm Head of Literature at the Scottish Arts Council. And a very, very warm welcome to this extremely special closing event of the Edinburgh International Book Festival 2008. And before we go any further, it's been an astonishing festival, another very special festival, yet another triumph. Can we hear it briefly for the fantastic Catherine Lockerbie and her amazing team? customary to sit down when introducing these events. I'm standing up because this is a very important occasion. The poet Hugh McDermid wrote, if there's anything in Scotland worth having, there's no distance to which it's unattached. That motto predicted the entire philosophy on which this book festival rests. And if there's one Scottish writer who embodies and personifies that philosophy to perfection, it is surely the man on my right. Alistair Reid is the finest prose stylist Scotland's produced since Robert Louis Stevenson. He's one of our most lucid and graceful poets, and he's one of the most distinguished literary translators of our age. He's also, of course, our most famous literary exile and itinerant. Since the 1950s, always geographically distant from Scotland, but never quite wholly unattached. Through his chosen condition and his aesthetic of being constantly elsewhere, in transition, as he puts it, He's opened up the writing and culture of this small country to entire continents of the great riches of 20th century world literature. Through his matchless prose and translations, he brings these treasures home, albeit at irritatingly irregular intervals. Literally and metaphorically, he has buried Scotland more than once, and dug her up again more than once. He has even set fire to Scotland in public. More of that anon. But the most important thing for us is that he returns. And this time he returns to launch these two beautiful volumes from Polygon, Outside In, Selected Prose, and Inside Out, Selected Poetry and Translation, edited by Mark Lambert, finally introduced by Andrew Hagen and Douglas Dunn, respectively. This is a major publishing event. Alistair is going to read to you for the next 20 minutes or so. We will have a chat, and then it will be your turn. Without further ado, will you please give Alistair Reid your warmest welcome. I should stand up only to acknowledge that, but for the rest of the time I'd much prefer to sit down because I find it's easier. I usually read when I'm sitting down and standing up to read 
I think, uh, is not, uh, not appropriate to what I'm going to be reading. It's very hard to talk uh, uh, about my life as a writer. I always have put down as my occupation writer, but I've written po uh, poems and, uh, and prose and translated and so on, opera libretti, all kinds of things. And people say, well, what are you really? Are you a poet? Are you a translator? And uh, I find that very difficult to answer. My dear friend John Pick uh, said to me last spring in Galloway, I, ha I, can't, uh, uh, I can't name what I do, he said, I'm just a ward man. And, most, and putting things into words is an extreme craft. But we never have shops that say, wordmonger or wordsmith. It's not a craft that people use or that seems to be available as on an everyday basis. But the life of a writer <coughs> is a life that's given over to this strange business of making sense of the world. I was very mixed up with a, with a marvelous Latin American writer, Jorge Luis Borges and uh, spent uh, many years in conversation, running conversations with Borges. And he said, we must realize that we inherit a deep duality which people don't realize. We are physical beings that live in time. And he said, I always look at, he has a wonderful story in which He's sitting in a cafe and he looks at a cat. And he says, I think of that animal. It's, it lives only in the present. It doesn't remember things. It develops instincts. But it's doomed to a perpetual present. The reason for that is that it never, the cat never had a language. We, as human beings, have language and we live in two realities the, re the reality we perceive and the reality that we construct in language and Borges was v uh, very prone to uh, quoting a strange uh, the Swedish explorer Nansen and Nansen said there is no meaning in nature Nature is in, uh, meaning is entirely a human invention, and language is its servant. We are people who live in time, like the cat, but we are also people who have language, and language empowers us to remember things, to plan things, to order things, to put them into words, to make sense. And I've always thought that the act of putting things into words is making sense of a world which we really don't understand. And uh, I've al always saved these certain quotes from mine. There's, there's a quote of uh, Christopher Fry that I've lived by a lot. I'm not used to these books yet, so I don't know where things are, but I know it's in there somewhere. 
He said, oh, Gavin, I should have looked this one up. <laughs> I don't think I know where it is, either. You do? Well, let's see. I don't want to be hampered by, we could spend the whole evening about this if. <laughs> we have plenty of time. <laughs> he said, in essence, uh, what Christopher Fry said and, and a, on a BBC broadcast in the 50s, he said, if we could only remember that we were not born fully clothed and lived in a service flat with a copy of the Times in our hand, but we were born naked and bewildered in a word in the world of which we had no understanding at all. It's amazing that we assume so much and we owe it all to be to, to what we have constructed out of language. Borges had the same idea exactly. Language we use to make sense of what we don't really understand. And we can use language to make plans to make fictions. Borges called everything he wrote a fiction. A fiction is an assemblage of words which lend a kind of sense to what we perceive all the time. And that's what being a wordsmith is, as John Pick said. You pre you're preoccupied with putting experiences and perceptions of your own into words and of reading other people's perceptions in language and um, and this is a con you you're constantly moving back between the the perception that is wordless and the way of putting it into words now i never knew what it meant to be a writer and i think in my teens i began by reading poetry and I never thought of being anything more than a poet because it seemed to me the most miraculous thing of all. To be able to put things into words that transcended the words and, be, and turned back into real feelings. And I remember being dazzled by single lines of poetry. There were two lines of a poem of Dylan Thomas the rest of the poem doesn't make too much sense, but the last two lines are extraordinary. They are, the ball we threw while playing in the park has not yet reached the ground. First of all, the cadence of these lines is beautiful, but when you think of them, you have a visual picture of a child playing in the park and throwing the ball, but you realize that's not what it's about. It's not that single event. This implies our whole life, that our life begins by throwing the ball into the air and ends when it hits the ground. And I suddenly realized that you could meditate on these two lines forever and ever and never exhaust the kind of meaning. It was not a meaning in the sense of intelligence, but it was a meaning that you felt from the image. And this is what the magic really was in in poetry and I'm very glad that I began my writing life by writing poems because um, I think that that made me conscious of language at its highest point where poetry really uses the music of language 
the shapes of language and the images of language combined in a way that adds up to something that quite miraculously turns into a whole world of its own. A strange moment where you move out of time, language takes you out of time. And uh, there's a wonderful sentence that I've quoted often from David Mitchell's novel, uh, Black Swan Green. He says, it was one of these moments when now is not now. And that's the feeling I always got from poems. And I, when I wrote poems, I wrote a lot of poems, and I've thrown away many more poems than I kept. I only kept the poems that seemed to do that. And I thought I would read, to make my point, uh, a couple of poems. You know, I, I, fortunately enough, I wrote down the page number. <laughs> I once had a flat in Barcelona and uh, below me was a, a flat occupied by a piano teacher, which is not the gentlest and quietest of neighbors because all day long I'd hear these lessons going on and the child playing the tune and they'd be repeating it and you know I imagined what was going on and uh, it was very uh, but I, I, med, I brooded on this a lot. And I, I had this image of the child at the piano. And uh, it, eventually it found its way into a poem, which seems now to have disappeared altogether. <laughs> That's terrible. It was here this morning. That's awful. I have to revert to the index. I'm awfully sorry for this minute. Oh, it's, it's my writing. It's 82. <laughs> <coughs> I called this poem at first to a child at the piano, and, and it's a poem that uh, musicians like very much. And, I had a great friend, an Israeli violinist, who has it stuck to the lid of his violin case, and he reads it before he plays, he told me. I call it a lesson in music. And this is an attempt to use that image to go beyond words and reach a kind of silence. Here's the poem. Play the tune again, but this time with more regard for the movement at the source of it and less attention to time. Time falls curiously in the course of it. Play the tune again, not watching your fingering, but forgetting, letting flow the sound till it surrounds you. Do not count or even think, let go. Play the tune again, but try to be nobody, nothing, as though the pace of the sound or your heart beating, as though the music where your face play the tune again. It should be easier to think less every time of the notes, of the measure. It is all an arrangement of silent, silence. Be silent and then play it for your pleasure. Play the tune again. And this time when it ends, 
Do not ask me what I think. Feel what is happening strangely in the room as the sound glooms over you, me, everything. Now, play the tune again. <coughs> Poems are, are... Please don't clap. <laughs> I waste enough time without... Uh, <laughs> and I always thought of poems as single events. Things would occur, things happened that had to become poems. And, uh, and the poems I kept, I think, are the ones that, uh, that, that did that always. And I, I would be, was quite ruthless about throwing away poems that didn't quite make it. So I've always been cutting down the number of poems I kept. And this, these books are really are the ones that, these are the survivors from the time I wrote poetry exclusively. This is a poem about a house I rented in Spain. And uh, it, had a, uh, it had a wonderful garden but I was only renting the house. I never had to work in the garden. There was a gardener, and we used to talk a lot. And I realized that he didn't own the garden either, that we were all the temporary ones. The, the reality was the garden that grew. And I wrote this poem then. It really is, I realize now that when the mortgage crunch has hit us this year, this is a poem it's very much in favor of renting houses rather than <laughs> owning them. But that only came just this year. The po a new level of meaning was added to the poem. Here is the poem, Mediterranean. However gracefully the spare leaves of the fig tree, abundant overhead, with native courtesy include us in their shade, among the rented flowers we keep a tenant station. The garden is not ours. Under the arching trellis, the gardener moves below. Observe him on his knees with offering of water for roots that are not his, tendering to a power whose name he does not know, but whom he must appease. So do we too accord the windings of the vine and swellings of the olive a serious mute oblation and a respectful word, aware of having put, in spite of cult cultivation, the worm within the fruit. This garden tenancy tests our habitual eye. Now water and the moon join what we do not own. The rent is paid in breath, and so we freely give the apple tree beneath our unpossessive love. Dear one, this present Eden lays down its one condition. We should not ask to wait. No angel drives us out, but time without a word will show among the flowers, sure as a flaming sword. The garden is not ours. Now, poems, uh, I've always uh, been a little disturbed by the gravity 
of poetry, and I don't think poetry necessarily is great because language is something that can have all kinds of moods, and and the comic in in language has always intrigued me. Words are tricky and words are playful, and it's very tempting, I think, uh, uh, if you are a poet, to play with language. And sometimes an occasion occurs that give you this opportunity. I'm going to read you an unlikely poem now that came about, as most of my poems have done, from things that I noticed or things that happened to me. And I was once in a library in Switzerland, and uh, there was a little man busy uh, at a table, then leaning over books, and suddenly two guards came and tapped him on the shoulder and took him out. I was a little perturbed and I went to the librarian and he said, oh, he's an O-filler and we've caught him. Now I thought, an O-filler is a man who fills in O's in words. <laughs> I discovered that there is a whole thing called library aberrations, <laughs> at which libraries are plagued by aberrant uh, uh, people who come and a, a librarian in New York told me that they had to lie in wait for months to catch a man who tried to eliminate the image of Queen Nevertiti whenever it appeared in a book <laughs> and had committed a great deal of damage before they... So, brooding on this, I wrote this poem. It's called The O-Filler. One noon in the library I watched a man imagine filling in O's, a little rumpled nobody of a man who licked his stub of pencil and leaned over every O with a loving care, shading it neatly, exactly to its edges, until the open pages were pocked and dotted with solid O's like towns and capitals on a map. And yet, so peppered, the book appeared inhabited and complete. That whole afternoon, as the light outside softened and the library groaned woodenly, he worked and worked, his oh-so-patient shading descending like an eyelid over each open O for page after page. Not once did he miss one or hover even a moment over an A or an E or a P or a G, only the O's, oodles of O's, O's multitudinous, O's manifold, O's italic and Roman. And what light on his crumpled face when he discovered, as I supposed, odd words like zoo and ooze, polo, oolong, and odontology. <laughs> Think now, in that limitless library all round the steep shelved walls, bulging in their bindings, books stood waiting. Heaven knows how many he had so far filled, but still there remained uncountable volumes of O-laden prose and odes with inflated capital O's in the manner of Shelley, O-bearing Bibles and biographies, even whole sections devoted to O alone, all his for the filling. Glory, glory, glory. How utterly open and endless the world must have seemed to him. How round and ample. Think of it, a pencil was all he needed. Life was one wide O. 
And why, at the end of things, should O's not be closed as eyes are? I envied him, for in my place across the table from him, had I accomplished anything as firm as he had or as fruitful? What could I show? A handful of scrawled lines, an afternoon yawned and wandered away, and the growing realization that in time even my scribbled words would come under his grubby thumb and the blinds be drawn on all my O's, with only this thought for comfort that when he comes to this poem, a proper joy may amaze his wizened face and oh, a pure pleasure make his relentless pencil quiver. <laughs> I'll have rest, Gavin. Um, let me see. Uh, I tend to pick the poems I like. Let me read you a poem now that I, I wrote about my son. It's a poem called Daedalus. It was very fashionable in the 18th century to give poems classical names. And you know, remember that Daedalus was the father of Icarus. That's why it has that title. But My son has birds in his head. I know them now. I catch the pitch of their calls, their shrill cacophonies, their chitterings, their coos. They hover behind his eyes and come to rest on a branch, on a book, grow still, claws curled, wings furled. His is a bird world. I learn the flutter of his moods, his moments of swoop and soar. From the ground I feel him try the limits of the air, sudden lift, sudden terror, and move in time to cradle his quivering feathered fear. At evening in the tower I see him to sleep and see the hooding over of eyes, the slow folding of wings. I wake to his morning twitterings, to the croom of his becoming. He chooses his selves, wren, hawk, swallow or owl, to explore the trees and rooftops of his heady wishing. Tomtit, bird wit. Am I to call him down, to give him a grounding, teach him gravity? Gently, gently. Time tells us what we weigh, and soon enough, his feet will reach the ground. Age, like a cage, will enclose him. So the wise man said, my son has birds in his head. I'll read you another cat poem. I have to say that I've written a number of poems that are strenuously pro-cat and anti-dog. And if I offend uh, any dog lovers in the audience, I don't care particularly. <laughs> anyway. I'm a dog lover, but never mind. <laughs> no offense, Evan. This is a poem called Curiosity. Curiosity may have killed the cat, 
More likely the cat was just unlucky or else curious to see what death was like, having no cause to go on licking paws or fathering litter on litter of kittens predictably. Nevertheless, to be curious is dangerous enough. To distrust what is always said, what seems, to ask odd questions, interfere in dreams, smell rats, leave home, have hunches, does not endear cats to those doggy circles where well-smelt baskets, suitable wives, good lunches are the order of things, and where prevails much wagging of incurious heads and tails. Face it, curiosity will not cause us to die, only lack of it will. Never to want to see the other side of the hill, or that improbable country where living is an idyll, although a probable hell, would kill us all. Only the curious have, if they live, a tale worth telling at all. Dogs say cats love too much, are irresponsible, are dangerous, marry too many wives, desert their children, chill all dinner tables with tales of their nine lives. Well, they are lucky. Let them be nine-lived and contradictory, curious enough to change, prepared to pay the cat price, which is to die and die again and again, each time with no less pain. A cat minority of one is all that can be counted on to tell the truth. And what cats have to tell on each return from hell is this, the dying is what the living do, the dying is what the loving do, and that dead dogs are those who never know that dying is what to live each has to do. Pause. <coughs> I can't let you away without reading some prose. Yes, I think, I mean, I, I never thought of being other than a poet, but what I didn't know was how writers lived. The first writer I ever met uh, and admired um, beyond belief was Neil Gunn, and he was very kind to me at the beginning. And uh, I said to Neil once, how do you make a living as a writer? And he said, beats me. <laughs> and. Uh, but writing is a very curious thing. At least I was impelled by another reason. My father was a minister and my mother was a doctor. And my father never went to work except on Sundays. Didn't have to get up early unless it was, and shave unless it was Sunday. My mother stayed and her patients came to see her. And I thought, when I grow up, I've got to find something that where I can stay at home. Because I thought this idea of going out and giving away your waking life to do what somebody else wants you to do in exchange for enough money to enjoy what the rest of the time that was left you was a very bad deal indeed. But I still had no idea how, how uh, writers survived. And then when I went to live in Spain, I, um, I got very involved in Spain and Spanish culture, and I um, realized that I w wanted to write about it, and I began to write prose. 
But the prose I wrote, I owe, I think, to having begun as a poet because I never wrote prose the way the newspapers do, just putting words down written by nobody. I, I, I gave to the, I used to hear the sentences when I was writing them and I gave them the cadence and phrasing that I, that I was used to giving uh, from poetry. And, uh, and of course, I spent a l long part of my life writing as a wandering correspondent for the New Yorker magazine, which allowed you to write very long pieces. And the longer they were, the more you got paid. <laughs> so I, I gave then poetry. I moved poetry to the back of my head, if you like. and. Uh, and I wrote enormous quantities of long, boring articles for The New Yorker. <coughs> but I enjoyed prose, and, uh, and I, although I missed poetry, I had moved really into the Spanish language then. And what I discovered was I began to read a lot of poetry in Spanish, and I used to try out how it would sound at, at translating just tinkering with a poem to see how it would sound in the other language. And I found this just as thrilling as writing poems. The best thing was that you get up in the morning, I used to translate for the first hour of the day. You never had to think of what you were going to write about because it was there in the other poem. And you had to move this poem over into another language so that it would work the way it worked in the original. If it didn't it was a terrible failure in translation. Some writing is untranslatable, but a lot of it with imagination is translatable. And, uh, and so I was really uh, giving up this. I, I've always disliked the distinction between poets, novelists, prose writers, essayists, uh, polemicists, reporters, etc. It's all the question of putting into words. There are so many different ways of putting into words. And I used to try out all kinds of different... Uh, uh, writers, uh, you can't write the same boring thing over and over again. You have to uh, keep yourself interested in what you're writing. Now, I chose a, uh, a very short piece of prose, just to give an example, because I can't read you any of the long, boring ones, because the time is limited. And so I'll just read this small essay. I spent uh, some 15 winters in a very remote part of the Dominican Republic, where all my neighbor, none of my neighbors could read or write. And it was a very telling experience, because they didn't understand anything of what I did. And when I arrived there and built a little house, I used to carry down these boxes of books. And they would say to me, Alejandro, they called me Alejandro. Alistair doesn't exist in Spanish. Um, Alejandro, why do you have so many books? Wouldn't one or two be enough for you? And they didn't understand anything. And they said, what is it that you do? And I showed them a page in handwriting, pencil, I always write in a pencil first. Then I, I showed them the typescript. They had seen a typewriter and they knew that. 
And then the next stage, I said, you give them that, and it becomes a book. Ah, that's what you do at your death. And then he becomes that, and, he, and, you, and they pay you for that, they say. <laughs> anyway, <coughs> this is a story about a couple of my neighbors there. It's a, it's a piece called Misadventure. I've spent a good part of my life living in remote places, and almost always they have served up adventures in the form of small happenings that suddenly raise enormous questions, happenings that still rumble in my mind. One of the most vivid of these occurred in the Dominican Republic, where I, where I spent a string of shoeless winters in its most remote province, beyond the reach of mail, telephone, electricity, newspapers, and running water. My neighbors lived mostly by fishing and subsistence farming, and over the years we grew to know them well. The men from a nearby settlement had helped build our small house above the beach, and they would often wander up of an evening to sit on the stone terrace and talk, always bringing some offering, an egg, a hand of bananas, some coffee beans in a leaf. Few of them could read or write, but they were no less than eloquent in conversation and inexhaustibly curious. They would ask endless questions about life in the United States, which they always called El Gran Mundo, and they do that over the sea. Uh, they would, uh, many of them had a relative who had made the hazardous journey there, and we in turn learned their ways. Nothing delighted them so much as making small deals, a kind of barter that we all lived by, sharing harvests and catches by way of the children who served as a band of small, swift messengers. Two neighbors in particular, Pucho and Porfirio, both fishermen, often helped me on the land when the sea allowed them, and with them I made a deal to bring them fishing gear from the Gran Mundo, as they always called it, in exchange for an eatable share of their catch, an arrangement that served all of us well over the years. One morning I had just returned from my weekly visit to the nearby town to get some supplies and to pick up a batch of mail, and was sitting on the terrace slitting open envelopes from what seemed increasingly another world, when Pucho and Porfirio appeared on the, on the path bearing fish, among them two squat coffee boxfish, to which we always looked forward. They perched on the edge of the terrace and we exchanged news. Among the mail spread on the warm stone of the terrace were two or three mail-order catalogues sent on from New York. Porfirio began to leaf through one of them, stopping here and there to point to an illustration. Alejandro, what is that? I tried to wave off his questions. I sensed trouble ahead. Sure enough, he eventually reached a double-page spread advertising a rowing machine. Alejandro, what is that? I could no longer put him off. Es una máquina de remar, a rowing machine, I told him. Pucho grabbed the catalogue, and the effect on both of them was electric. They crowed with delight. And how much does this wondrous machine cost? <coughs> Porfirio now had the scent. I made a rapid calculation. About 15,000 pesos. They whistled, but their eyes were already gleaming. 
Do you know Porfirio suddenly stood up and pointed far out to where the waves broke? To get to the reef out there where we fish, Pucho and I, we row for almost an hour and back when we're tired. And when we fish nights across the other side of the bay, that's a two-hour row for us and the same back. But with this magnificent machine, <laughs> Porfirio, I stopped him with a hand. Take a good look at the picture. People keep these machines in their houses. Both pairs of eyes looked at me in disbelief. <laughs> you mean there is no boat? Pucha said. I shook my head. And no water at all? He could hardly contain himself. So people in the Gran Mundo have this expensive machine at home, this torture machine, to make themselves do the thing we most hate doing in our miserable lives. I could do nothing but confirm their horror. <laughs> Porfirio waved the catalogue indignantly. Alejandro, forgive me, but this world in here seems crazy to me. Why would sensible people who can afford to buy fish want this torture instrument in their houses? It is far beyond my understanding. <laughs> there was little I could say, for I felt much as they did. Feebly, I tried to explain. People there sit at desks for too long, so they have these machines at home for exercise. They frowned in unison. Exercise? Pucho had trouble with the word. What is exercise? I gave up. From then on, I got rid of the catalogues whenever they appeared. In that place, they had come to seem increasingly subversive. I discovered later, however, that it was as well Porfirio had stopped at the pages with the rowing machine. Three pages further on, a tanning machine had been lying in wait. So that was prose. Now then I think, I mean, might as well do the whole thing. Uh, I'll give you, I'll read, the thing about translating poems in other languages, languages are so different. It was, I think the most important thing that ever happened to me in my life was to move and live in the Spanish language. Because all languages are have embedded in them a history and a view of the world. And there are expressions in the language that cannot be translated simply because they belong to a mindset that, that belongs to that language. And it's very difficult to, to translate. For instance, I remember once coming across the phrase, uh, I mean, uh, wondering about once in a blue moon. I was writing something in Spanish, and, and I wanted to think of once in a blue moon. Well, if you translate that literally into Spanish, it has no meaning at all. So I asked my Spanish friends, how would you say once in a blue moon? They say, what? What does that mean? And I said, you know, a very unlikely happening. And they would debate for hours. And finally, the only one that said, the only phrase we can think of in Spanish that has that equivalent, we say, a cada muerte de obispo, every time a bishop dies. <laughs> now, clearly, there is a wide gulf that cannot be caused. 
by literal <laughs> translation. And so you're bringing something that has a different mindset into English. And I was very lucky in knowing very well the poets I uh, translated, knowing Pablo Neruda very well in Chile, and Jorge Luis Borges in Argentina, and, 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 and they all they traveled and we met in various parts of the world. And Neruda made me a tape once, and uh, I played it over and over in my, and until I could hear it, I can hear it in my head now in his voice. And that was a great help. I somehow had that cadence. I'm going to read you a poem of Neruda's called, um, Neruda was a staunch member of the Communist Party and uh, a very powerful politician and really a world figure. And uh, his poems had enormous influence. He was probably the greatest poet in the Spanish language in the 20th century. And uh, he was a great eater and drinker, a man of huge appetites. And, uh, and I remember he made a deal with the Chilean Communist Party. He said, whenever you need a poem about Stalin or anything like that, I'll give you the, and he wrote dreadful political poems, but the deal was that they were not to interfere with his lifestyle. He was not going to dress in sackcloth. Uh, he wanted to live well, and he liked living well. And he wrote this, uh, this poem, which is about food, but it's a very political poem. And uh, this is a, I don't think this would ever have occurred in English, I think. It's a poem called The Great Tablecloth. When they were called to the table, the tyrants came rushing with their temporary ladies. It was fine to watch the women pass like wasps with big bosoms, followed by their pale and unfortunate public tigers. The farmer in the field ate his poor quota of bread. He was alone. It was late. He was surrounded by wheat, but he had no more bread. He ate it with grim teeth looking at it with hard eyes. In the blue hour of eating, the infinite hour of the roast, the poet abandons his lyre, takes up his knife and fork, puts his glass on the table, and the fishermen attend the little sea of the soup bowl, burning potatoes protest among the tongues of oil, the lamb is gold on its coals, and the onion undresses. It is sad to eat in dinner clothes, like eating in a coffin. But eating in convents is like eating underground. Eating alone is a disappointment. But not eating matters more, is hollow and green, has thorns like a chain of fish hooks, trailing from the heart, clawing at your insides. Hunger feels like pincers, like the bite of crabs. It burns, burns, and has no fire. Hunger is a cold fire. Let us sit down soon to eat with all those who haven't eaten. Let us spread great tablecloths, put salt in the lakes of the world, set up planetary bakeries, tables with strawberries in snow, and a plate like the moon itself, from which we can all eat. For now, I ask no more than the justice of eating. Now, if you think of that last couplet, 
for now I ask no more than the justice of eating. That's a very political statement, and yet it's, a, it's very much a poem at the same time. It has that when now is not now moment. Now, I want to read you another poem that is really a lovely poem. Neruda, late in his 60s, decided to write his biography, his autobiography, in the form of five books of poems. And the first book was about his childhood. And he wrote this, this book, uh, and, uh, this, and this poem then. It's a poem called Sex. set in Chile. His, he, his father was a railway engineer and he lived in the extreme south of Chile while the railroad was being built. And he, and, uh, and he, re, he recalls being, it was a very unlikely thing for someone from that beginning to become a poet. But uh, he wrote poetry like nobody else. And, this is, uh, I'll read this poem to you without saying any more. Sex. The door at twilight in summer, the last passing carts of the Indians, a wavering light and the smoke of forest fires, which comes as far as the streets with the smell of red ash of the distant burning. I, in mourning, grave, withdrawn, shorts, thin legs, knees, and eyes on the look for sudden treasures. Rosita and Josefina on the other side of the street, all teeth and eyes, full of light, voices like small concealed guitars calling me. And I crossed the street, confused, terrified. And hardly had I arrived, than they whispered to me. They took my hands, they covered my eyes, and they ran with me and my innocence to the bakehouse. Silence of great tables, the serious place of bread empty of people, and there the two of them and I, prisoner in the hands of the first Rosita and the final Josefina. They wanted to undress me. I fled, trembling, but I couldn't run. My legs couldn't carry me. Then the enchantresses brought out before my eyes a miracle, a tiny nest of a small wild bird with five little eggs, with five white grapes, a small cluster of forest life. And I reached out my hand while they fumbled with my clothes, touched me, studied with their great eyes their first small man. Heavy footsteps, coughing, my father arriving with strangers, and we ran deep into the dark, the two pirates and I, their prisoner, huddled among spider webs, squeezed under a great table, trembling, while the miracle, the nest with its small light blue eggs, fell and eventually the intruder's feet crushed its shape and its fragrance. But with the two girls in the dark and fear, with the smell of flour, the phantom steps, the afternoon gradually darkening, I felt that something was changing in my blood and that to my mouth, to my hands, was rising an electric flower, the hungry, shining flower of desire.
Now to give you a taste of my other, the other poet who, who, who I translated, Jorge Luis Borges. Borges was a, an extraordinary man. He was born in Argentina and um, he had a maternal, uh, a paternal grandmother who was an English woman and who came to Argentina as a governess and met a military man who was Borges' grandfather and they married and Borges' father was son and the grandfather died and the grandmother, English grandmother from Northumberland came to live in the house with the family and Borges as a boy used to go out and visit his grandmother in her room upstairs every day for a conversation and he told me once that he, when he, he knew that when he went up and spoke with his grandmother, he had to speak in a certain way. And when he spoke to the maid in the kitchen or to his mother, he had to speak in another way. Many years later, he learned that the way in which he talked with his grandmother was called English, and the way in which he talked with the maids was called Spanish. In fact, he became bilingual without knowing and uh, and this is and Borges had a, his father had learned English naturally from his mother, and uh, he had a vast library of uh, English books. And Borges read Don Quixote first in English, and when he discovered it in Spanish, he thought, "Father, this is a very good translation," <laughs> etc. And uh, Borges did admire, had a great admiration for English literature. And he spoke uh, good English, but curious English. It was the English of, of somebody who had never lived in the language, but who had read extensively in it. So he would say things like, the devil take him, <laughs> by Jove. Now, nobody in life ever says by Jove, that's from books. But he did love uh, speaking English, and we used to speak both languages, and I discovered that he was very formal and polite in English, but he was very mischievous in Spanish. And uh, he was clearly, um, there were different selves. And that's the, 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 great, the experience of two languages. You, you grow an extension of yourself, you grow another self. And uh, it's, it makes language, the whole business of putting into words, even more fascinating and even more mysterious. There's a poem of his that I love uh, called The Other Tiger. It's a poem, again, about the difference between the verbal reality and the physical reality. It's called The Other Tiger. It's about trying to write a poem about a tiger and failing, as, we, as, as language will never actually arrive to be the physical world, but it'll keep trying to get closer and closer. Here's the poem. I think of a tiger. The fading light enhances the vast complexities of the library and seems to set the bookshelves at a distance. Powerful, innocent. I'm sorry, this is. A piece is missing here. Oh, sorry, no, I've got it right. Sorry. There is a line missing, that's what I don't know. 
Okay, now uh, I'll read again. I think of a tiger. The fading light enhances the vast complexities of the library and seems to set the book bookshelves at a distance. The tiger, powerful, innocent, blood-stained and new-made, it will prowl through its jungle and its mourning and leave its footprint on the muddy edge of a river with a name unknown to it. In its world there are no names, nor past, nor future, only the sureness of the present moment. And it will cross the wilderness of distance and sniff out in the woven labyrinth of smells the smell peculiar to mourning and the scent on the air of deer delectable. Behind the lattice of bamboo, I notice its stripes, and I sense its skeleton under the magnificence of the quivering skin. In vain the convex oceans and the desert spread themselves across the earth between us. From this one house in a far-off seaport in South America, I dream you, follow you, tiger on the fringes of the Ganges. Evening spreads in my spirit, and I keep thinking that the tiger I am calling up in my poem is a tiger made of symbols and of shadows, a set of literary images, scraps remembered from encyclopedias, and not the deadly tiger, the fateful jewel that in the sun or the deceptive moonlight follows its path in Bengal or Sumatra of love, of indolence, of dying. Against the tiger of symbols, I have set the real tiger, the hot-blooded one that savages a herd of buffalo. And today, the 3rd of August, 59, its patient shadow moves across the plain. But yet, the act of naming it, of guessing what is its nature and its circumstance, creates a fiction, not a living creature, not one of those that prowl on the earth. Let us look for a third tiger. This one will be a form in my dream like all the others, a system, an arrangement of human language, and not the flesh and bone tiger that out of reach of all mythologies paces the earth. I know all this, yet something drives me to this ancient, perverse adventure, foolish and vague, yet still I keep on looking throughout the evening for the other tiger, the other tiger, the one not in this poem. I'll stop, I'll have to stop Thank you. So that was beautiful. Thank you so much. It's a crime to bring it to an end. I feel as if a thunderbolt will pierce the tent and turn me into crispy bacon. Uh, but rules are rules. It's always wonderful to have a seamless reading and talk such as the one Alistair has given us this evening. I, I know you're all bursting to ask questions. So am I. Um, however, it's almost, it's not quite over. Um, because Alistair is going to be signing copies of his books in the signing tent just behind us. Um, and I'm sure he'll be happy to take any questions you have 
then. I don't think he will fill in your O's. <laughs> if you could just give us a couple of minutes uh, to move in that direction, that would be appreciated. But before we do that, will you please join me uh, in showing your appreciation of this fantastic session from Alistair Reid. Thank you.